You're listening to The Global Strain, a podcast that explores how the COVID-19 outbreak affects our world. I'm your host, Joel Sandu. The coronavirus pandemic has forced many people to work and school from home, to self-quarantine, and to maintain social distance. As more of our lives go online, Western governments are considering to follow South Korean and Chinese approaches to embrace sophisticated surveillance tools that can track individual movements of their citizens in an attempt to stop the spread of COVID-19. The political thinking on the use of invasive tools underscores a simple dynamic at play during the current global pandemic. Public health concerns are trumping the desire to protect individuals' privacy online and in the real world. Even in the home of the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, Europe's sweeping privacy rules. In light of the current crisis, critics of surveillance initiatives argue that regulators are greenlighting practices that will almost be impossible to roll back once the pandemic has passed. So, will the move towards increasing levels of surveillance, especially in Western liberal democracies, hollow out after the coronavirus pandemic ends? Or are we on the cusp of a new normal, one where governments openly embrace surveillance? What do citizens need to know about surveillance technologies used by their governments? And while we're at it, how can we protect our data while working from home? Join me and let's find out. First, What is surveillance? And what is considered legal versus illegal surveillance? To find out, I called Stephen Feldstein, an associate professor at Boise State University's School of Public Services and a non-resident fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Stephen researches technology and governance and is the author of the AI Global Surveillance Index, which provides empirical data on AI surveillance use for 176 countries around the world. Surveillance can generally be thought of government actions to monitor, track, uh, and otherwise uh, follow information relevant to a variety of interests, but usually relevant to uh, a set of national interests that the state has. And, you know, the, the real question becomes kind of when is it allowed, when is it permissible, and when is it not? And, and you know, there's a set of guidelines that uh, are internationally uh, accepted that relate to proportionality and legitimacy uh, and legality. And so the idea is, if you have a set of interests that are legitimately, that are legitimate and lawfully codified, you know, and uh, then and you're using technology in a proportionate way to those interests to accomplish those, then that is, that that's the rubric one uses to say, is the surveillance legitimate or not? Uh, and so an example of that might be a terrorism target that is, you know, sort of that one is tracking related to specific information that is threatening the the interests of a particular country. That would fall into this legitimate and proportional category. On the flip side, something that was overly broad, like there's not really any threat information, and you have a surveillance system that is monitoring a thousand people uh, in a city, potentially on the basis of the, let's say, their ethnic origin. That would fall outside a legitimate category as well as proportionate to the, to, the, to the threat. So that's kind of the standard that people use, you know, and obviously there's a lot of room in terms of kind of does that work or not. Uh, but that's the kind of general approach. Surveillance technology is more than just CCTV cameras. So I asked Stephen, what are some of the different types of surveillance technologies and what are they used for? We're talking about kind of the, the different sets of technologies that I've looked at in the index. There's really four that I've, I've been kind of looking at. So one is safe city, smart city system. And this is where you have a system that's part of a municipality that where you have sensors, uh, essentially video surveillance, other types of sensors that track and, and take in information and data about citizen movements or uh, or behavior. Uh, and that, that information then gets uh, put back into kind of a central op- intelligence operations center where different types of analysis can occur in terms of monitoring what's coming from those sensors. So that's kind of one. Uh, second is facial recognition. So that's uh, you know, cameras that have an enhanced ability uh, to recognize individuals based on facial characteristics. So it's taking your kind of analog CCTV camera, it's making it digital, it's giving it facial recognition qualities, and then it's also giving, matching it with algorithms that can do uh, really kind of discrete searches based on what's coming in. A uh, third uh, is uh, smart policing. So this is kind of a range of different tools. Sometimes smart policing can incorporate facial recognition, other types of sensors, but it also oftentimes involves uh, predictive algorithms. So it means trying to predict where particular hotspots in the city might be prone to crime. It also can be used for prison sentencing to predict uh, recidivism. But these are a whole suite of tools that have been uh, kind of put into to effect on the law enforcement side. And then finally, there's social media monitoring as well. And this is sort of, it's not just 
looking widely at what people are saying, uh, individuals are saying on social media. It's also using deep learning algorithms to detect specific patterns, to look for individuals, uh, to look for messages that might go against uh, the public interest or the political interests of a particular regime. Uh, and this is uh, something that Freedom on the Net actually highlighted in their most recent uh, report on technology uh, and its proliferation around the world. How effective are these technologies and what are their limitations? Most importantly, in terms of effectiveness, there needs to be an underlying state capacity. There needs to be a, a security agency or an intelligence agency that's actually able to make actionable the, the information that comes in. Uh, so I'll give you an example of you know where, where it can be most effective. And I think this is something that a lot of people have thought about. But in the context of China, particularly when it comes to its efforts to put uh, establish a police state in, in uh, Xinjiang, uh, as well as Tibet, uh, that's where you see a coming together of a, a massive amount of uh, security forces that are already on the ground that are then amplified uh, and enhanced in terms of what they can do by technology uh, that's used. So, you know, incorporating facial recognition cameras to track different individuals and their movements, bringing other amounts of data, including even genomics and DNA, doing uh, sort of license plate spotters, uh, Wi-Fi sniffers. But, you know, the the what has made this so effective is not only do you have cutting edge technology that's undergirded by uh, algorithms that can search for specific patterns, but you have that tied to a very intensive police state investment that's put in place. So that's where it can really kind of matter. I think a lot of other uh, countries, you know, some of them, let's say places like Uganda, Algeria, other places that are uh, Kenya, that have standalone facial recognition systems that are being established or whatnot, it really varies in terms of their effectiveness. For states with low capacity, let's say Uganda, for example, that, that's where you almost wonder if it's a little more security theater than it actually is something that can be used to specifically target and keep a, a population under check. I mean, there's also a chilling effect where if people think they might be watched, it'll sort of automatically regulate their behavior, which frankly hits the objectives that the state might want anyway when it comes to repression. Stephen alluded to what is called targeted surveillance. So I asked him, what is targeted surveillance and how is it different from mass surveillance? With targeted surveillance, you're looking at a set of individuals and you are putting together technology accordingly uh, in order to be able to monitor and track those specific individuals. So, you know, targeted surveillance could be anything from, uh, you know, mobile phone tapping, you know, uh, monitoring uh, internet or email communications, things like that, but where it's individually and specifically oriented. Mass surveillance is when you have kind of a much wider net uh, where you don't have a specific individual that you're looking for, but you're trying to look for broader patterns. And, you know, with mass surveillance, when it's not actually tied to personal information. So let's say you're doing wide-scale social media monitoring, trying to look at sentiment analysis or trying to understand better where certain types of information or patterns might come. But where there's just metadata not tied to individuals, there's less of a legal question. There's a, a reduced legal issue. When you're using mass surveillance where, where you're trying to pick out individuals based out of like a wide net, that's when you have a real problem. That's what you see a lot of uh, in China, for example, when it comes to their mass surveillance systems. China inevitably comes to mind when talking about surveillance. So we reached out to Xiaojiang, a research scientist at the University of California Berkeley's School of Information and editor-in-chief of China Digital Times. I began by asking him what role did surveillance measures play in the Chinese government's COVID-19 response strategy? If we uh, talk about surveillance, particularly uh, technical surveillance, China certainly has been a, a country that uh, in, in the past decade developing its capacity in, in an unprecedented uh, scale. My work usually was following the digital censorship, uh, which uh, also being a, a place that government deployed a, a large amount of uh, surveillance, digital surveillance on content uh, and the people and internet users uh, over the last decades. But in, uh, uh, in the past five, six years, uh, there was a particular trend of this uh, surveillance technology became an entire social control realm, uh, from security camera to facial recognition technology, uh, from the voice recognition to the uh, social credit system. Now, in that context, uh, when the uh, COVID-19 outbreak starting from China, uh, the first sort of the, the implication of the China surveillance technology uh, was not about how effectively they, they react on. Well, they effectively reacted on the information which spread it on the Internet, and they actually suppress it by the help 
of the surveillance technology, which actually became the cause of this global pandemic. But few weeks later, when the uh, outbreak really happened inside of China, that the top authority realized this what kind of disaster it is. Then the reaction is the national mobilization. Uh, starting from quarantine of the 11 million people city to pretty much the entire China. At this time, the surveillance technology, meaning the social control, the uh, personal identity in combined with their uh, people's geolocation, in combined with their health information, even uh, in combination with their social contacts, it become really, really handy for uh, the Chinese government to uh, organize the society, control the society in the combat of coronavirus. Why is it so important for the Chinese government to monitor and observe its citizens? It's a social political control because uh, China's vast population, and particularly with the economic uh, growth, that the vast migrant population, the government have a very difficult time to trace where these people from countryside working and living in the city and what they do, what their status. So the uh, uh, the fact that they can now can use surveillance camera, facial recognition technology, plus a cell phone directly getting to everybody's hand is a very convenient tool, right? Uh, to give you an example, that there, that's why no other country easily can learn to have the capacity of chi- China can do. The, this uh, Tengxun company and Alibaba company, their app on every Chinese smartphone has their not only GPS location, it has every store they had shopped at, they had meals they had ordered. They had information right they had hailed. They have information friend they had messaged for meetup plans or rental bike handlers they had attached. All these in other countries will be different private companies. Those data will be in a different different places. Hard to aggregate them. But in China, one company and which a government directly access to it, it can pretty much connect all these data together. And that is just giving the government the tool that other government wouldn't be able to use. If surveillance is so prevalent in China, I wondered what the general attitude among Chinese citizens is towards the use of public surveillance. Here's what Xiao thinks. There's a lack of a privacy protection, independent sort of a privacy uh, sort of legal system, which then can ensure the data protection or the, uh, there, whether there's a public space debate about uh, the relationship between the civil liberty or, or privacy versus surveillance and, and, and the very weak, almost non-existent civil society in China. So these are the things putting the same technology, which uh, not only China has, but uh, many other countries has, uh, in a different social, political, legal uh, context. They, for example, in, in China now, we see the, uh, the damage part of state that repressing information, using technology to censor the information, causing the uh, outbreak of the pandemic. We also see the country like China has the capacity to control and mobilize society uh, with the help of such technology. Then uh, they are react to contain the outbreak seems quite effective, uh, even if it's not completely transparent about their data. Then finally, the concern is, will this technology stay after the pandemic? But in China, it's not a debate. It's a government plan to make it stay. Many local governments saying that we invest so much to this personality, personal identity health card. It doesn't make sense that we'll just abolish the system after the pandemic. They are publicly calling the companies working with them to expand what they call the social control and the governance system based on this health card, health code, because it's so widely installed in every Chinese citizen's app now. It will be so convenient for the government to expand the functions. They're starting to add educational functions, public services, the data collecting, and uh, of course, uh, there will be other uh, functions to add into the system, connecting different sections of the data. And then that is a one hand that enhances the capacity of the government to access those information and, and using this information. But on the other hand, this is a grave danger to the uh, civil liberty of the Chinese citizen in the future. 
I mentioned the AI Global Surveillance Index report that Stephen authored at the beginning of this episode. The report shows that 51% of advanced democracies deploy AI surveillance systems. In contrast, only 37% of close autocratic states make use of it. I put it to Stephen to tell us, why are liberal democracies so eager to monitor and observe their citizens? You know, the use of surveillance is something that, you know, can be a legitimate tool in security services. And it's something that particularly in the post 9-11 era that a lot of uh, intelligence agencies in places like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, France, uh, and the US who have legitimate uh, security vulnerabilities, uh, you know, associated with terrorist groups and other criminal elements, uh, it's a legitimate tool to use. And so the question really becomes, you know, I, I mean, I guess the next step would be to ask of all the surveillance systems, powerful surveillance systems with, uh, powered by or linked to artificial intelligence and big data that are out there in democracies, how many of those actually are tied to specific abuses? And that, my guess, is a lot lower. I, that's not something I measure, and I think that's something that's still being defined in terms of what exactly constitutes an abuse or not. So I didn't want to go down that road, at least for this research effort. But that's the question. So if you're going to actually do a comparison between closed autocracies, uh, many of which don't even need to use advanced AI systems because they have thousands of police officers on the streets, you know, look at a place like Eritrea. Uh, I mean, the, the question really is, who is violating rights tied to these advanced systems between democracies and autocracies? And that's where you'll, you would get a different answer. But yeah, I mean, I think I was surprised to just see the fact that there's, pro there's more surveillance out there for legitimate reasons, but still there's more surveillance out there in democracies than I think people, uh, people realize. Now, it's got us wondering, does the COVID-19 outbreak serve as a good excuse for governments to step up their surveillance game? I asked Jan-David Franke, who works on digital rights, surveillance, and democracy at the digital policy think tank Stiftung Neue Verantwortung in Berlin. He's the editor of the blog aboutintel.eu, which brings together expert voices on surveillance and intelligence governance in Europe. So yes, indeed, of course, we are seeing a whole range of of government or government-sponsored surveillance measures in response to COVID-19. And I would say while some of them do serve legitimate ends, there's there are significant risks to civil liberties now, but also in, in, in light of the precedents that may be set for the future. So on the sort of extremely invasive end of the spectrum, there's China, of course, um, who have engaged and, and repurposed and, and expanded their already vast surveillance apparatus in particularly dystopian ways. And then further down this sort of spectrum of invasiveness, you have the European PEP-PT standard, which is being developed, or the Singaporean app called Trace Together, which are approaches that are based on decentrally saved and, and only in the case of infection, anonymously pooled um, Bluetooth data to identify contacts and proximity of those contacts and the duration of these encounters. But it's also noteworthy that even less invasive suggestions, such as one that was made by an activist and politician called Anke Domscheit-Berg in Germany, where, who suggested that health authorities fashion risk maps based on the data they are collecting anyway to, to score risk for place and, and for time, but not for individuals, they have been largely ignored. So what we have been seeing around the globe, I would say, can be categorized to um, in three applications, in three needs that um, these this technology was meant to serve. And of course, first of all, we have contact tracing. With coronavirus, naturally, there is a premium on being able to draw up and, and monitor social networks and physical space, and then to be able to see the virus and, and how it moves to the population. And, and one of the ways to do that is, is contact tracing, which has traditionally been done more by dedicated researchers at, at health authorities based on the information infected individuals shared voluntarily about the history of their close encounters over the previous weeks. And now this process is being automated through, through telecommunications providers sharing location data or cell ID with, with health authorities uh, through apps like the Singaporean app Trace Together or the European PEP-PT standards or through other apps that have that, that use GPS data to determine um, social proximity. But then we also see surveillance technology used to enforce quarantines on an individual level. Um, Taiwan, for example, is doing what's called mobile or electronic fencing, where your mobile phone sort of serves as an ankle bracelet. And if you turn it off or if you run out of battery because you're asleep or if you move away with your phone from your registered app, address, then police and local officials will be notified and they visit you within 15 minutes or so, or, or so they say. Uh, officials also call you twice a day 
to ensure that you don't like leave your phone at home and just venture out outside. And then we also see GPS data being used to track individual compliance with quarantine across various U.S. states and around the globe with Kenya and Serbia and Israel, just, just a few examples. And then, of course, we have Russia and China uh, who are using facial recognition claim to use that for this for the same purpose of enforcing individual compliance, but obviously way more invasively so. And then and then thirdly, the third sort of mode of application is that surveillance technologies used to monitor compliance with lockdowns, which you know can be considered collective quarantines, if you will. We see a range of European countries, including Germany, pool location data to assess general compliance with lockdowns. And we also see CCTV, CCTV footage or video drones being deployed to enforce lockdown compliance in, in the UK and in Spain and, and elsewhere. We've heard of the different types of surveillance tools that are out there and what they can do. But are these tools really effective when it comes to stopping the spread of COVID-19? I would argue, and many others have, that the, that whether these tools actually serve the purpose of fighting COVID-19 effectively is, is to be doubted. Um, location data, for example, or cell ID are too imprecise to effectively trace encounters. If you're in a building and there's you know, several stories or a cell ID is a large area of, of, of space that, um, you know, doesn't really offer anything useful in terms of um, seeing who you've came in physical, physical contact with. And then many of the algorithms that are underlying and informing the apps aren't publicly accessible and verifiable. And that's true, obviously, for the mandatory health code apps in China. But it's also true for the Datenspende app that was issued by the German Health Authority, the Robert Koch Institute. And then, obviously, CCTV cameras can't tell you you know, if someone's going to his 15-hour shift at a hospital or if they're illegally providing private haircuts at a friend's apartment. And then also, the use of this invasive technology to enforce compliance constitutes, I would say, a serious renegotiation of the relationship between the state and its citizens in, in, in liberal democracies. We have taken pride and, and strength from the fact that a self-motivated and well-informed population is m- more powerful and more effective than a policed and ignorant one. And, and suddenly this is all being put to it, put to a very serious test. And then obviously we need to be wary of of people trying to, to seize this opportunity to pro- to the people especially who tend to prioritize profit and power over democratic standards and human rights. On the one hand side, you have the surveillance industry trying to whitewash their tools. You have Palantir collaborating with the NHS in the UK, but you also have authoritarians and, and those who'd like to be one trying to expand social control, as has been the case in Hungary, in Vietnam, in India, in China. So the line between COVID-19 and COVID-1984, as I read somewhere very poignantly, certainly beginning to blur in these cases. We've heard a lot about the types of invasive technologies, their uses, their limitations in the fight to hold the spread of COVID-19. But is there something we should know about this topic that is not widely discussed when it comes to data collected using surveillance tools? I would highlight two important aspects to the use of surveillance technology that I think are now more relevant than ever, but have always been relevant. My understanding is very much that although these times may seem extraordinary, they only enlarge existing questions around privacy and security. And the first aspect and the first statement is that you do not need to choose between privacy and security and between privacy and health. And the second one that I'll get back to in a bit is that emergency measures have a nasty tendency of becoming normalized. So the first one, the idea that you can somehow only have one of the two, privacy or security, privacy or health, that this is sort of a scale, a, a trade of tension field, a zero-sum game, I think that's very much false. I think we can and we should enjoy both privacy and security and both privacy and health. And I think in this context of corona and COVID-19, the idea that these aren't mutually compatible is in itself predicated on, on three erroneous assumptions. The first one is pandemics don't come out of nowhere. And we do have means of reducing the likelihood that they will reappear in order to tackle the root of the problem as a global community. Um, instead of looking at surveillance and, and, and control, we can also make significant changes to wildlife trade regulations or to industrial meat farming, which is where a lot of dangerous viruses come from, such as the swine flu in 2009 or the bird flu in 97. Um, and then we have man-made climate change and environmental destruction, which need urgent addressing. And they're a primary factor in the heightened risk of pandemics in the 21st century. And then, of course, there's government censorship, which in China has proven absolutely catastrophic in the outbreak of this pandemic and which could be addressed perhaps through greater international pressure on China or, or other countries that place narrative over truth. I think the learning here very much is that a transparent government 
is a lot more effective than transparent citizens. I think what's also false is, and I think this stems from this idea of technology is a panacea, techno-solutionism, um, this, is, this is what we need going forward, is the idea that te digital technology, and especially surveillance technology, should be high up on our list of measures and can, that can potentially mitigate the risk. I think what countries like Singapore and South Korea show us that with COVID-19, what is really essential is testing, testing, and testing, as well as universal and well-funded public health care, as well as fairly low levels of social inequality, as well as competent and foresighted leadership, as well as pre-planned standardized procedures and availability of masks. So instead of measures that will weaken our democracy, there's so many things that we can do, which as a positive byproduct will make our societies fairer and healthier. And I think there's also a, a third erroneous assumption, which is the, the idea that public health compliance needs to be meticulously policed. Uh, I think instead of instituting you know, potentially totalitarian surveillance regimes, or at the very least, you know, concerning invasions of privacy, we can also choose to protect our health by empowering citizens. Look at East Asian countries and the way that they've understood that wearing a mask in public when you're feeling ill is a very good way of responsibly contributing to the collective well-being. And they don't have a mask police going around hitting people on the head if they don't wear a mask. I asked Jan David whether he thinks donning a mask in public when one is feeling unwell will become normalized after this pandemic is over. The debate around masks has been sort of sidelined by the understanding that regardless of whether or not they protect yourself, it's very much understood that they protect everyone else if you are if you are feeling ill. And I, I do think that once we get past our idea that they look silly or, or stupid, um, just like maybe we have the understanding that if you're wearing a bike helmet, you're a bit of a fool, um, I think maybe we can get around to... to to understand that they will be useful. And I think understanding that will help us deter some of the more brutish solutions that are out there. So I think if I would very much rather live in a world where wearing masks, if you're feeling ill, has become normalized, than where sort of a state of emergency has been normalized. Because the idea that emergency measures are temporary is an idea that we very much need to champion because they do have a nasty tendency of becoming normalized. As, you know, as much as, as much as these measures may currently be advertised as being only temporary, there's a, there's a high risk of mission creep. And if you know, I'd much rather prefer the mission creep of mask wearing than the mission creep of, of surveillance. History is full of examples where states of emergency never really went away. And even if they did, the policies that were adopted while they were in place, very much didn't. So look at France, 2015, the ter um, terrorist attacks on the Bataclan and other cafes in, in Paris. And the state of emergency that was issued right after was extended five times and lasted two years. And when it finally elapsed, many of the, of the exceptional powers that were given to the Ministry of Interior and the, and, the, and the different prefects, they were absolved into law and they can still be executed on what are still vague grounds and with still limited judicial oversight. So the question is what happens when the state of emergency is over and countries are left with these fast surveillance mechanisms in place. Um, and I, I think the understanding that I really want people in liberal democracies to have is that you might trust the people using them now. I think Angela Merkel and, and Jens Spahn and, and Lothar Wieler are people to be trusted by and large. And you might trust the purposes for which they're being used. But there will be there will be different presidents and different bureaucrats and different CEOs down the line and different purposes will arise for which these systems will seem beneficial and they will abuse it. Some of them will. And we know that because they have in the past. That's the very reason. That's the very lesson from history that has caused us to enshrine the right to privacy, to enshrine other crucial civil liberties into our constitution. Some data privacy activists argue that increased state surveillance in the context of COVID-19 is not inherently unlawful. There are ways of using surveillance technology that are not rooted in a desire to enforce repression or limit individual freedoms. I spoke to Ali Funk, a research analyst for technology and democracy at Freedom House. Ali is an expert on human rights in the digital age and most recently published an article titled Fighting COVID-19 Shouldn't Mean Abandoning Human Rights. I asked Ali, what are the human rights principles that should be considered when assessing the lawfulness of surveillance measures? 
We've identified um, five human rights principles that need to be built into any surveillance program so that privacy can be protected and also public health. So the first one um, is around scientific necessity and proportionality. So any type of program, the first question needs to be, is it proven to limit disease spread? It seems very simple, but um, a lot of the efforts that are happening around the world don't have evidence that they're actually going to protect public health. So we shouldn't restrict rights if we can't prove it effective. And then once you prove it's effective, then the question of proportionality comes in. So is it the least intrusive way to go about this data collection? Are we minimizing the type of data collected? The second principle then is about independent and robust oversight. So, you know, having a legislative or judicial review process that really decides what type of data is collected, who manages it, how it's collected, and by whom the data can be used. This is really important so we don't see abuse or misuse. The third one relates to open and transparency. It needs to be clear to citizens how their data is being used because this is going to help build trust in those public institutions that are tasked with curtailing the outbreak. It's also going to ensure that civil society groups or private sector or opposition figures and journalists can really hold these programs accountable for their performance and also the officials running them. And then fourth, this one's super important that, you know, isn't being built in as many programs as as I would like to see is that sunset provisions. So we need to make sure that any of these programs that are rolled out now end when the pandemic ends. So, you know, I think it's very, once you, you know, authorities sort of get access to this information, it's going to be really alluring to kind of keep that access later down the line. We also need to clarify, clarify what happens to the data afterwards. Generally, the data should be destroyed um, unless it's being used in very specific ways to sort of help research later down the line about how the disease spread that could help for a future pandemic. And then the last principle that we identify relates to firewalling this information from other governmental commercial purposes. You know, this this stuff is is if you the government gets access to your location information that can be really helpful to maybe intelligence agencies or immigration agencies or even law enforcement it can also be really really helpful for commercial entities you know whether that's an insurance company you're an employer or just the ad advertising the advertising area so those are really the five main principles that we've identified and you should just kind of look at them as go down the line any new program does it does it hit these five checklists um, and that's how we are assessing if certain programs are justified to be um, imposed right now ali just mentioned the five human rights principles she believes governments need to take into account when assessing the lawful use of surveillance measures well are there countries that are doing comparatively good job in observing these principles I have yet to see one program that hits all the mark, but I think there are some governments and, and private companies that are really thinking about these different principles, but there are some that have, have hit certain principles really well. So let's zoom in on South Korea. They have done really invasive contact tracking that might not always hit the necessity principle. For example, they've pulled information from credit card records that is, you know, really intimate information about what we purchase, but the law that the South Korean authorities are using to allow for this surveillance actually has an end date and it says that data needs to be destroyed once the pandemic's brought under control. So that really kind of fulfills that sunset provision that we're calling for. Another great example of the really openness and transparency component is Taiwan. Taiwan has had a number of different tracking initiatives and different apps that, you know, some of them are, are really invasive that um, we want to call for. But what they've really been able to do is build public confidence in the technological response to the health crisis because of how transparent everything is. Um, they have different platforms where ordinary users can participate in a really active way that makes them feel part of the process. So then they're going to be more likely to trust the government on how that data is being used. Talking about platforms, many of us are turning to online meeting spaces like Zoom, Google Hangout, Jitsi, and others to hold work meetings and to catch up with family and friends. I don't know about you, but I am no computer expert. So I put it to Ali and asked her what she thinks are the surveillance risks that come with working from home and how can we protect ourselves from online threats. 
So I think there's kind of like two categories of surveillance risks. The first one is employee-based tracking, where it's actually the employer doing some of the tracking. And you know, there's a bunch of software. It's sort of been around for years, but I think with the switch of so many people working from home, workplaces might be concerned that we're all not being as productive as they think we should be. Then they're trying to monitor our activity. You know, Zoom used to have a component of this where you could track like attention tracking during calls. They've since, um, dismantle that, thank goodness, um, after, you know, a public outrage over it. But I think there are also, you know, Slack, for example, the, the messaging platform Slack, which I think I live on, employers can actually request that they get certain private messaging on the platform if they go if they go to Slack. They, they have to prove why they want that, but still the risk of that is quite high. And then the, you know, the that second category I mentioned has to do with cybersecurity concerns. And of course, these cybersecurity concerns have always existed, but I think when you move at home, they exacerbate a little bit. So let's look at like home Wi-Fi versus workplace Wi-Fi. Our home Wi-Fi might be significantly less secure than some at work when you have an IT office that's focused on it, focused on updating it, making sure it has the most secure protocols. And if your Wi-Fi is not as secure, it's more susceptible to being hacked. Um, another example might be a lot of us, I know I'm using more of my personal computer than, you know, a work desktop. Personal computers may also be less secure. Um, you know, remote access to comp company share drives might be less secure as well. So this basically means that hackers are e more easily can get access to employees' personal communications or or files. Um, and I think if you're particularly looking at civil society organizations, nonprofits, small news outlets, they're most at risk for this stuff um, because, you know, civil society has limited resources, unfortunately. And we may not have been able to invest in the type of cybersecurity tools that are really needed to protect themselves. So you imagine if you're communicating about sensitive information that might criticize a more authoritarian government, it might be really attractive for, you know, hackers from that authoritarian government to get that information. But the good news is there's a number of things we can do to protect ourselves. You know, I think step one is to educate yourself and just make smart choices that prioritize your own digital hygiene. So you should do a risk assessment of yourself. You know, I work in civil society and I work with a lot of activists around the world. So I choose encrypted communication channels. I prefer Signal. Um, it's end-to-end -end encrypted. Um, it's a messaging app. You can do um, messaging or you can can do audio calls, all of which encrypted content, not metadata, which means who I'm talking to and the time I'm talking isn't encrypted, but what we're talking about is. Another thing to look into is just the transparency of tools. So Zoom, for example, as we found out, is not that transparent, but there are platforms like the video online um, platform Jitsi that is actually open source. So people can go in and review the code and actually see what's happening with it. Another thing is it just about, you know, being smart with your passwords and using two-factor authentication. If you're using Zoom or if you're using Jitsi or these platforms, once you're in the call, set a password so people can't randomly join. And, you know, I think, you know, just as... I, I think there are a lot of great resources around this on how to build your risk assessment and, and make the best choices for you. For example, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has a really great guidelines out there about how to protect yourself while working from home. So I urge folks to, to take a look at that and, and make the best choices for themselves. We've heard throughout this episode that once certain measures are put in place that generate knowledge and power, it's going to be very difficult to roll them back. I mean, just think of the Patriot Act after the September 11th attacks, which gave U.S. law enforcement officials enhanced investigatory tools. I asked Ali what concerns her the most when she thinks about the future when it comes to surveillance practices. It is really difficult because right now, it's not just that we're rolling out, you know, a new app here or there. We're actually building these underlying structures of control that you can't, are very difficult to just get rid of later. So what I mean by that is if we zoom into like data sharing agreement between mobile providers and the government across Europe, a lot more mobile service providers are providing this information to government authorities. You know, these are the same government authorities that have wanted access to this information for years for intelligence purposes or law enforcement. And they've been constrained by, you know, different legal systems that have tried to build this wall between what private companies have about us and what government authorities want. So 
right now we're saying, okay, let's let's dismantle that wall and just give that access over during this time of crisis. But once the crisis ends, how do we build that wall back up? Because we just then showed authorities that, hey, it's really easy to just hand over this information. We could have been doing this all the time. And then also, if you look at a lot of governments are, you know, looking at these facial recognition programs to, you know, track people who violate quarantine. You can't just simply roll back a facial recognition program that is put into place. And why would authorities want to kind of once once they get a taste of that power? And then, you know, it's not just, I think, about privacy, too. It has long term risks on a range of other rights. So if you're not firewalling this information, governments who have access to, you know, location data might be able to, you know, use big data, you know, whether they're using the the data mining company Palantir, which we know a lot of governments mm-hmm. are, are uh, working with right now. I know the U.S. is. I mean, I think some European countries are. They actually have, you know, really advanced tools to look at location data that might be able later down the line to disperse protests in advance of them even happening. So a lot of this information we're sharing now could have real effects on things like the freedom of freedom of association and assembly, free expression. They have real effects for migrant rights who, you know, if ICE in the U.S. or Customs and Border Protection got information about location data of undocumented people, that's really dangerous for those people um, who are at risk of deportation. And then finally, I think the, the, the last point is just about the normalization of privacy intrusion. If we're showing if, if governments are making the claim that these type of monitoring efforts were impactful in limiting the spread of the disease and there isn't actual evidence for that, we're, we're, you know, making an assumption among society that your privacy isn't as important as something else. And, you know, privacy is really important. And I think anybody who works within the, the human rights space that, that, you know, looks at these surveillance issues is constantly on an uphill battle of, of showing why we need to protect privacy. Um, so I think this might just make it a little bit harder. Cultures and societies across the globe have very different understandings of what privacy means. Nowhere else is the idea of individual privacy so fiercely protected than in Western countries. Why is privacy so important? I mean, I think it comes down to, you know, who, like your, your personhood and, and who you are. I want to be able to share who I am with the people. Like I want agency in that, right? Like if who I am, if the, the, my sexual preferences or my religious beliefs or, um, you know, simply what I buy at the grocery store, that is fundamental to who I am. And I should have the agency to decide who that type of information gets shared with. So just from a personal matter, um, you know, I don't, go around on the street broadcasting everything everything about me so I don't want my data that knows everything about me broadcasted like that and then you know just from you know a perspective of like liberty and freedom it that type of information is is so dangerous in the hands of certain government authorities that um, might want to use it to crack down on folks so if you're you know religious minority in certain places in Southeast Asia or you're part of the LGBTQ community in Azerbaijan that type of information means that you could be either you know targeted or just put in prison you know it's it's privacy is so important for who you are just as a person and also your physical and emotional safety. Bringing it a bit closer to home, I got in touch with Ulrika Franke, a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Ulrika focuses on German and European security and defense, the future of warfare, and the impact of new technologies such as drones and artificial intelligence. Here she is sharing her thoughts on the surveillance debate in Germany. We're almost having a, is it a philosophical? I don't, I'm not quite sure. We're having a debate here, basically, that kind of brings together rights of the individual versus rights and security of the society, right? And so we have a situation where do there, there are there there are good arguments of inf- on infringing rights of individuals in order to make the society more safe and this is actually what we're doing at the moment right everyone staying at home at the moment is exactly that like i as a as an individual person am not really allowed to go out anymore or at least not to the same extent as before in order to keep society safe and i think everyone is pretty much behind that especially i saw polls in germany i think it's very clear that that pretty much everyone agrees that that's a good idea but this is very temporary and the moment you know it kind of ends i go out and that's it there's no long-term um, implications here having 
for instance, such an app that does contact tracing is, is, is a bit of a, s a similar logic, right? I'm giving away some of my rights to privacy. I'm telling, let's say, the, the government where I am at, at all time, but this is done in order to keep society safe. Okay, and you could say, okay, this makes sense in the situation of pandemic, I'm, I'm willing to give up this, this individual right. I mean, A, I would say, let's try not to, let's try to create um, a system where you don't even have to give up this, this individual right. But okay, you may have to actually do that. But then the, the main difference between the lockdown and this is that the moment the pandemic ends, whatever that, that's going to mean, I can, I can leave my house, but I may still have this app. Or as we said, you know, this kind of ability of a, of a government to trace where I am is, is out of the back and, and uh, has been done once. So why wouldn't it be, um, would be used again? And so, so I think, I think it, it, the debate in a way boils, boils down to, to rights of an individual versus rights of a society, which, you know, is a good debate to have in a society. And there are no like clear truths here that I'm advocating for, but we need to make very, sure that we're not overstepping out of panic basically and that we get this right now because if we get it wrong now there could be enormous repercussions and quite honestly we're still getting to grips with all the things that came out of 9-11 and that were done in the name of counterterrorism, and we're still dealing with those and I don't want to sit here in 20 years time and say oh if only during the corona crisis we had done x and y different the world would have looked differently. All this talk on surveillance technology, monitoring and observing, ensuring our safety, all this conjures up this image of an unsafe world where we constantly have to watch our backs. Is that really the case? Are we living in a dangerous world that calls for the rise of surveillance? In general, our world is becoming safer, right? I mean, there's there's a question of what exactly um, are we looking at? But but overall, I mean, when you look at, at crime statistics and these kind of things since our society, as far as I, I remember, I mean, most of the time it's actually getting better or at least it's not a situation where things are somehow radically getting worse in a way that we really kind of need to stem the tide and, and really react quite in quite extreme ways. I think that's, that's a, a fair assessment. I think a lot of these new technologies are used because you know people think there's something new here and it can be really useful and it can but it is really important to kind of keep in mind the possible downsides here there's a certain allure of saying oh there's this new technology we can use and wouldn't that be great and it would be so useful um, and let's just have a have a try but the moment you know we kind of use it as we said, it's it's out there. And so facial recognition in particular is something I find, you know, pretty scary. Um, and we really, as a society, we need to make sure that the upside of potentially solving uh, more crime, for instance, which would be the claim for, for using facial recognition, isn't outweighed by the downside, um, which has to do with surveillance. It also has to do with bias. I mean, you know, facial recognition systems, as they are out there at the moment, um, seem heavily biased against certain ethnic groups, things like that. So they work, they work better on, on some kind of people than, than on other. And, and so there is a real issue of kind of reinforcing existing human bias through the use of technologies. And so that's something uh, we also need to make, make sure we don't do. As we all are, uh, I'm also influenced by science fiction to some extent. I mean, I, I'm thinking about, you know, the kind of minority report world where everyone can immediately be identified just by their face. And I find this scary in so far as that there is no way to undo this there is no way of getting around this um, in minority report if i remember correctly this guy has like new eyes implanted to 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 get around um uh, which isn't facial recognition in this case but but kind of eye recognition and so you can't you can't do this obviously um with your whole face and so there is a mix between um the fact in it of itself and then possible abuse cases because you know you always whenever you use a technology to do a you always need to think you know if someone wanted to abuse this what are possibilities b c d up to z how you could use this in ways that you don't like so you know we were talking about contact tracing earlier makes a lot of sense when you want to trace infectious diseases but with this exact same technology you could also trace for instance people who have common contact with certain dissidents wouldn't that be nice who has talked to dissident a um so so that's that's one example and you know you have similar things with with facial recognition sure 
I mean, yeah, you can use it to solve crimes faster, but it also means that you can just find everyone all the time wherever they are and kind of link it to, to a number of things they're doing. And so that that just creates this, this state of total surveillance I would be enormously uncomfortable with and I think goes against everything our open democratic societies stand for. So Ulrike just mentioned the 2002 science fiction movie Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise in a film where a future technology makes it possible for police to catch criminals before a crime is even committed. I couldn't stop thinking of George Orwell's famous book, 1984, which depicts a dystopian society. In recent years, we've seen movies like Hunger Games, Little Brother, and Lives of Other hit the silver screen and become very successful films. I asked Ulrike who happens to be a pop culture enthusiast, why are people drawn to these movies and what is it about them that captures our attention? To some extent, what science fiction in general does really well is that it allows you to kind of game out scenarios and, and quite often extreme scenarios, right? It kind of allows you to think through what would happen if, you know, we change this this little screw a little bit and in a hundred years time this is this is what happens. So I think that's that's what science fiction is generally good at. And and there is a there's a fascination with kind of seeing these extreme scenarios play out. And to some extent, you know, they can also warn us. I mean there's a reason why we just quoted Minority Report as something that we don't want to see in the future, right? This isn't, this isn't the future we, we want. But that being said, so I, I'm just thinking whether there is a good science fiction book or movie or whatever that really kind of drives home the main problem I have with these surveillance states. Because you still have a, a shocking amount of people who basically tell you when you talk about, you know, how scary it would be to be surveilled all the time and how we already have all these systems that basically trace so many of the things we're doing. So many things basically, so many people tell me, but, you know, I don't really mind because I, I have nothing to hide. And I think this is, this is, so wrong as a response. I mean, A, everyone has to hide something from someone. I mean, honestly, that just sounds you know, impossible to me that you want your whole life to be open to everyone. But anyway, even if you were okay with this, the, the, the problem often isn't the surveillance as such, even though that's also problematic, but what you can then do with it, which has to do with how you can influence people. And and coming back to my original thought about science fiction, I was just thinking that I'm not really sure whether there's a good example of a science fiction book or movie that describes the situation where because of this total surveillance um, that, you know, we are very early in creating this, but but because of a surveillance that, that we're already kind of starting to create through, you know, smartphones, etc., etc., where you, where individuals then basically lose so much of their own free will because they're influenced by well by everyone by companies by states to do one thing and not the other i mean this comes kind of back to the cambridge analytica um issue of of people being influenced on facebook and elsewhere on the basis of then of their personality as they were assessed through the data that that was collected on them and that were then swayed or you know at least the company tried to sway them one way or another um, when it come, came to their political choices and there are so many other um, other examples um, that we can can think about and so this this really comes in, in the most extreme case where I have a situation where you where you need to wonder about like how much of my decisions are actually made by me and how, how many of them are made by whoever is is controlling and nudging and influencing me and so that's the really scary bit. I admit, sometimes it does feel like 2020 kicked off like a science fiction movie, and not a very pleasant one to say the least. With close to 3 billion people across the world on lockdown, striking a balance between using surveillance technology and respecting human rights and privacy will not be easy. How this plays out as we collectively move into the future is yet to be determined. Our guests today were Steven Feldstein, Jan-David Franke, Ali Funk, Ulrika Franke, and Xiao Tiang. I want to thank our producer, Sonia Sugubova, and our colleague, Hannah-Sophie Bowman, from the Global Public Policy Institute for their work on this episode of Global Strain. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast and find more episodes, opinion pieces, interviews, and scenario reports on www.ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.